This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk. Greetings for Indie Book Publishing, Balboa Press. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Believe and Achieve. This book is uh, one of those motivational-type books, and my author who joins me from California is author Joel Hopkins. Welcome, sir, to the program. Thank you very much. And I, I believe you are in California, or is it in uh, the Northwest? No, I am in California. Fantastic. Well, good visiting with you. I uh, I understand that uh, this is a first attempt for you, at least as an author. Share a little of your background and why this book got written. Um, well, I am a financial executive at a major entertainment company, and um. Part of the reason that I wrote the book is because um, as you work your way through the corporate world, one of the things that you always have are meetings, and I feel like um, I'm, I'm an observer. So I look and watch, and um, I saw that some people that were very successful, top-level executives, were very average intelligence, and some people that were not nearly as accessible were very, very bright people. And I started really thinking like, why is that the case? Why, hmm. why isn't it that all the really, really bright people are the really successful people? And as I analyzed it, I sort of found a trend and I wanted to share that. It is part of that. And, and I have observed similar situations where there are some very, in fact, I have some family members who are, I would call them brilliant, but uh, they don't seem to achieve much. They, they seem to be focused on, you know, getting through the day, getting through the week, but long-term goals seem to disappear. What, what was, what's the first step that you, you felt was, uh, was important? I know you, you use the word uh, saturation, uh, saturation busters and vampire charts and other things in your book which are an interesting turn of phrase do those all build on the same foundation they do uh, build on the same foundation because your environment is everything and if you've never peeked over the wall of your environment you don't necessarily know that it really should be a lot different i remember speaking to a young woman uh, who was, you know, no more than 18 or 19 and was working in a kitchen at an elementary school. And she was talking to me and saying she was so excited because she thought she was going to get a 15 cent an hour raise. Wow. And I looked at her and I thought, wow, she's bilingual. She's super smart. She's attractive and got a great personality. She does not know. She's never looked over that wall. She's never seen that. 15 cents an hour is so minuscule in the whole spectrum of what she's capable of um, that in that moment I knew, God, I just have to be able to, you know, get the word out to those people that just look over the wall a little bit and mm. you will find that it is so much easier to achieve a thousand times that um, if, if you really stop the saturation and, and take a chance to, get a different perspective on 
how much easier it is to accomplish your goals than you might think. It's And it's astounding to look at some of the history of uh, very successful people who in their early years or in their early education and so on, uh, Einstein himself was considered to be a dolt or a, a, an underachiever when he was a child in school. They, they didn't think he would ever amount to anything. Winston Churchill the same way. There are many people who have achieved greatness in their life that had that ability to to get beyond their circumstance and their environment and become something or accomplish something. You talk about upbringing. How important is that? uh, Well, upbringing is, you know, really important because it it sends a foundation. You know, it really is the foundation. You have a tendency. I, I have young children myself, and I find that if I tell them something about who they are, they very easily become that if i Mm. i have been telling my kids they are brilliant for ever ever since they could talk and they believe themselves brilliant and they get really good grades and they love to um go to school and you know some might say well maybe they are you know smart i maybe so but i've been telling them that and they haven't always acted like they felt it but now they do and i just keep telling them that that's beautiful. That's good parenting and and good advice for the people we associate with. And I think that's that's one of the um, one of the keys that you have mentioned under vampire charts. Some of the people that just suck the blood out of you. I've got some very close friends that every time I'm around, if I you know happen to highlight what I think is a personal achievement, they will come back and say, "Well, that's not such a big deal." Uh, they kind of yeah. have that that mentality of of diminishing other people that's that that are around them. Uh, you you have uh, laid this out in uh, how many different uh, divisions? Is it just the the goals and saturation busters? Is that the division of your book? Mostly, yeah, yeah. I try and just impart as much as much. When I say it's advice, it's just what I have employed in my life, and it has worked for me. I was um, uh, very poor as a child. Um, I, you know, I did not have, um, I did not have particularly good, um, study habits. I didn't get particularly good grades, but there was something that I did have. I had very, a very positive mother who was very, very, I heard my mother say once, well, Joe will be able to accomplish anything because he doesn't know that he can't. Wow. And that statement uh, stayed with me through my whole life. And I thought, you know what? I always have kind of thought that, yes, I don't have anything now, but I will. And I know that I'm going to. And I think there's so many people who never really get that. And and the common core between successful people is undoubtedly they just thought they could. They just really, really at the core of their being thought that they could. You take someone like Oprah Winfrey who, you know, came from a, a very poor background. And there was something in that woman. She just believed she could, and she did more than most could ever do. It's incredible when you look around. Even even Steve Jobs was not a college graduate, I, I believe, or university graduate, but he right. he had right. that, that belief system in place. You have in Chapter 7 talked about spiritual commitments. What do you mean by that? What is a spiritual commitment that uh, helps you with your goals? Well, you know what? A spiritual commitment is sort of, um, to me, is you know being happy with who you are. And um, there are, I do talk about spiritual commitments. I think that can hold you back. I don't ever like using 
the word religion because that you know that means so many different things to different people that it's it's a hard word to use when you're trying to explain a concept because it was like oh religion that must mean mm-hmm. you're this religion and they're bad because of that so i just say your spiritual commitment is um is that belief in yourself and that sense of joy that you should try and bring into your life every day you have uh, subtitled this also in 30 days you can successfully prepare yourself to achieve any goal or program you desire that's a fairly lofty ambition you have uh, i guess proven this in your own personal life how difficult is it to get started and to keep on track well i think uh, so i have you know followed many different motivational speakers and spiritual advisors and Somehow, even in following them, I felt like, okay, you have all this great advice, but it's kind of like if you're dieting. Well, someone says, well, you know what? If you eat right, you'll lose weight. But (laughs) they don't really give you a core how to prepare yourself or quitting smoking. Just stop smoking. You know, I I, I was a smoker and I had to stop smoking, um, you know, 15 years ago. And I just wanted people to have a sense of what little things can I do that can adjust my belief in myself. And I picked out the things that are the most obvious to holding you back from really believing in who you are. And I do talk about that tell it like it is person. I don't have any friends that are tell it like it is friends. I only have supportive friends because Mm. tell it like it, tell it like it is people always tell you something negative. They never walk in and say, wow, you look fabulous today. I'm sorry. I just tell it like it is. They don't say that. They'll say, oh, wow, that hair color. I don't know. I don't know if that works for you. They're Mm. never really positive people. So I just say, get rid of them altogether, and you'll just feel a weight off your shoulders, and it'll just make you walk a little taller. And that is the way you want to go into any goal. And I also talk about not picking a goal because someone else thinks it should be your goal. If going to college is not your goal, don't go to college because then college will become work. Hmm. Now, if you're excited about a particular field and love it, like a scientist, you're going to go to college and love every minute of your, and you won't necessarily refer to what you're doing as hard. You might say, I had to spend a lot of hours on it. I was exhausted and fatigued. But you'll never say that it was hard because you loved it. Like, I mean, I don't think you find many athletes that say, or professional athletes that say, oh, boy, work was really hard today. <laughs> you know, oh, my God, no, I have an ERA of, you know, 356 or something like that. And it's right. Because they love it. And I'm trying to guide people to really pick the goals that they love and not because they think they're going to make money or they think they're going to make their family happy or any of those uh, reasons that I don't believe are the reasons you you pick a direction. Joel, do you give any recommendations or suggestions on how to obtain the friendships that we all desire? And those are the positive input people. I have a few of those. The ones that were my mentors in the past have uh, unfortunately uh, had health illnesses and, and passed away, and I haven't been able to replace them. And I'm having a difficult time because of that. How do you find those individuals? Where are they hiding in this, uh, this world of uh, confusing input? Well, it is not 
easy. And so I, the way I do it is just by, and it may not be the most scientific, but it's just by the process of elimination. If you remove the ones that are not that way, it just opens the door for more people to come in. And if you're you know, allowing a balance of those people that aren't that way, they are critical or um, the tell it like it is person, then you're limiting the amount of time open to find new people. And as you begin to be that yourself, you will attract people that are like that, Beautiful. that are like that are supportive. You will do it. Beautiful. You uh, you have completed a book that is uh, in a kind of a general phase, one of motivational and inspirational, I guess. You, How long did it take, Joel, to, to put this into print, and who was the person that you were trying to reach with your message? I had thought about it for several years um, as I formulated my ideas when I actually put um, pencil to paper, it probably took me a year and a half, um, maybe a little bit more, uh, primarily because when I started writing it, um, my children were very young, um, you know, in the three to six year old range and of which I have three. And, uh, it was a little bit difficult to, you know, take the time to just sit down and, um, and, and focus and organize my thoughts. Um, and, the person that I'm trying to reach isn't a specific type of person per se. It's not a college student or a business executive. It is that person who doesn't feel they have enough, but doesn't really know why they don't have enough. And what I mean by that is my example of the young woman that I met that I looked at and thought, oh my God, she has so many qualities mm. that are so important in society today. And she just has no idea. Well, a little bit hard uh, to identify those people because some people, they don't know what they don't know. And I saw so many people that I just want to say, Oh my gosh, do you realize this quality and this quality and this quality can bring you here? Um, so if anybody just looking for more in their life, to fulfill their life more, and it'll just hopefully give them a fresh perspective and less um, saturation, because there's all kinds of saturation, I talk about it, just the noise in the world, in particular, if you're someone that lives in the city with sirens and loud music and all those things, I believe, draw you down, even though some people might think they bring you up, I don't believe they do. I mm. believe that they sort of draw you down and hold you back. Well, I agree with that. That's uh, That's been sort of my evaluation process over the last uh, few weeks. I've been looking at all the noise around me and wanting to find a way to uh, maybe escape for a week or two and just chill. I mean, and more than just yeah. relax, but to actually reevaluate what's important in life. Your book is uh, is easy to read. You've included some charts and some graphs and some ideas, some some working things, tools for for the reader. Uh, are you hoping to to uh, perhaps uh, do a follow up book, or is this your your primary goal at the moment? You know this book is my primary goal. I mean, it is what I wanted to do. It's what I wanted to leave behind for my children. It's what I wanted to share about my experience. Um, 
because I really did start with nothing. I did not have money for college like, you know, many kids do. And I just wanted it to be out in the universe. So if there are those people that are excited about a 15 cent an hour raise that they can have millions and they can have wonderful relationships and they can have, um, wonderful children and all those things. It is not nearly as impossible as they think it is. And I just want to do in part that. And as I grow, I plan on writing another book, Uh same, same type of book, the next level. Like, what do you do now? Now you've been through your 30 days. Now you are feeling much better. Now, how do you really pick that goal that is going to catapult you into the stratosphere? Well, an exceptional job. The title of the book, again, is Believe and Achieve. In just 30 days, you can successfully prepare yourself to achieve any goal or program you desire. My author, Joel Hopkins. Joel, where do we get copies of your book? Well, in the day of online everything, you can get it on um, balboapress.com. You can get it on amazon.com. Any 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 online book sales spot. It's available everywhere. Fabulous. And again, for those who uh, might want to uh, look at their local bookseller, they can also order it in for you if you choose to uh, to get it that way. Again, the title, Believe and Achieve. My author, Joel Hopkins. Joel, thank you for joining me today and sharing your story. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. For Indie Book Publishing, Balboa Press, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting Magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors. All quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book title is You Can't Heal a Wound by Saying It's Not There. And the subtitle, Overcoming Your Past and Embracing Your Future. This is the second edition, and joining me from California is the author, Dr. Sandra J. Talby. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Jay. Uh, Dr. Talby, this is a, a book that is um, brief by some standards, 164 pages, but as I began to read its content, I found out that it was uh, very uh, thoughtfully put together. It is deep in its uh, thinking process mm-hmm. and, and in its content. How did you condense mm-hmm. everything in such a short period of time into a book? Mm. Well, it's uh, a story that's been in my heart for over 25 years. And when I was a seminarian, I knew that uh, I was going to write a book with that title. So 
it's a story that goes way back. My mother used to always say to me, uh, you know, different things I would bring up, and she'd say, oh, it's all going in the book. So I think unconsciously I've been preparing to write it. It only took me nine months to actually uh, type it out, you know, to do word processing. Right. Nine months. So. Mm-hmm. The, the content itself, though, is I would call it a very deep thinker's book. Uh, that's something that you have been working on all of mm-hmm. your uh, adult life, I guess, and your mom somehow had an, had an inkling that you would be an author and share this uh, this uh, this material. Yeah, I think she did. I think she did. Um, and thank you for the compliment of saying deep, deep thinker. Uh, I pride myself in, you know, thinking through things. I, you know, I am thoughtful. And I tried in this book to combine uh, my seminary training uh, with uh, my psychiatric training. And uh, so the two kind of just come together. And I say in the book that uh, theology and psychiatry or psychology are kind of uh, two sides of the same coin. And so as I think about, you know, people and all of us, you know, we're all broken, including me, <laughs> and, uh, and, and therefore... You know, there's a uh, a work that God wants to do in each one of us. And uh, so I wrote that book really to kind of awaken people who are not aware of the fact that they most likely have a wound, too, that goes way back. And I tied it to the text, Jeremiah 14, where the New King, New King James Version says, uh, they dress the wounds of my people as though they were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. And then I gave the updated translation of that, which is you can't heal a womb by saying it's not there. And the fact is that most people uh, deny that they, they have some kind of brokenness. And, uh, and so I, I try to awaken that in people um, so that they can begin to open up their heart to God and to uh, see that God has a plan for their life and it's to use their brokenness to uh, get healed and then to reach out to other people. There, There is a New Age, uh, I guess, New Age thought that's uh, floating about, and, and I may, in some cases, uh, think it has invaded the church culture, where, you know, we are the, the term, and I, I hope this doesn't uh, step on anybody's toes theologically, uh, again, I'm... I will, I will say I am a, a bystander mentioning this. Um, there's a, 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 a train of thought that's called positive confession. And the positive confession is it really doesn't exist if you, if you claim that it doesn't. Uh, you're not saying that wounds are not there. You just say that you cannot uh, heal them by, by ignoring them. Is that the, the uh, that's, way of describing it? That's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. That's exactly what I'm saying. So, no, I'm not saying that positive confession thing, but, but the, yes. you are exactly right. Yeah. Did, Most people deny that they have any issues, and uh, and they just say, well, you know, it's, it's her, or, or the wife will say, it's him. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so what I'm saying is it's both of them, and uh, and so it's up to them to figure out, you know, what they need to do to get well. But, but, but beyond that, um, our ultimate healing is to, accept Christ and to uh, receive him as our Lord and Savior. And most people, you know, they, they don't know that. Yeah, yes. Your, your book itself, because you are a pastor and come from a Christian background, would you say that your audience is uh, going to be primarily those of faith 
uh, communities, or are you also reaching out to those who either have been in a faith community and are maybe wounded and and uh, not comfortable in a church? Uh, who are you trying to reach with uh, this message? I the purpose really of the book was to uh, reach out to people who are not in the building. They may have, as you said, at one time been in church and been wounded by fundamentalist religion, and therefore they've walked away, or they may be just so angry at God, uh, and, and they've never even considered that God loves them. So I'm really reaching out to people who uh, don't know him and who uh, may be able to open up by reading a book like this that's not preachy and it's not heavy uh, in terms of the psychological language. I, I really tried to just use everyday conversational style you know, uh, parlance and uh, that's why I ended with that story taken from the uh, the Velveteen Rabbit, which is a powerful story. And uh, so I, I'm I'm trying to reach people who are not churched, uh, whether they were there and left or whether they never came. And then, and then secondarily, certainly people who are Christian can uh, be- can benefit. You've broken it down into five different parts. Uh, the first part is anatomy of a wound, and uh, you you uh, again encourage people to acknowledge: yes, I do have a wound of some type. I may have uh, buried it in my uh, psyche or into into my past, but it's there, and I need to address it. The second one is the anatomy of a wound, the facing the wound, and then hope for the future. Hope is something that people are missing in our society and in the church world in specific. How do you address that? What's the hope of their getting through this maybe hidden part of their life? Yes, that's a good question. Well, first of all, um, hope, you know, is not some um, magical thing where uh, people just kind of want things to turn out the way that they want. I try to make the point that hope really, again, is rooted in Christ, but it means that we uh, should expect that he is going to keep his promise to us, which is to use whatever the pain is, whatever the wound is, for our good, and we are to use that to reach out and help other people. In other words, if there's somebody who is, uh, let's just say they, they, they've never done drugs or alcohol or anything, but they're just very perfectionistic and... Uh, they uh, look down at people and they're selfish. Well, that's a wound. And, uh, and so God wants to heal that. And I'm calling them to look at that and to, to understand that you can be free from that. And you can reach out to people who are similarly like you. And you can say, you know, I was once like that too. And God healed me. So that's the message I'm trying to say. Whatever it is, whether it's uh, perfectionism or whether it's some wound from abuse in childhood or a wound because you were addicted to pornography or drugs or alcohol, whatever it is, maybe it's just judgmentalism, God can heal it, and he has purpose, and we have to tell our stories. What I like about your book and your approach is that you don't shy away from subjects which may make some people nervous. Uh, you you had the, you you. you Approach them head on. Uh, things like PTSD, which is again something that's prevalent in our society. Uh, you talk about the wounds of racism, the wounds of homelessness. What do you yeah. see in homelessness that is uh, is culturally needing to be addressed? Oh yes. Well, first of all, our in our church plant we have a feeding ministry, and so I began to go out and I tell a couple stories in there where I just 
volunteering and serving coffee at 6 o'clock in the morning. And I got to know people and know their stories. And they, uh, they're just like anybody else. But homelessness, the wound is that they've lost their dignity. Mm. They, they, they're very apologetic. They don't think people care about them. And they're embarrassed because a lot of them are not able to take showers. And so, they, you know, they smell. And uh, so they, 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 they come uh, kind of uh, with a, a downward uh, look. You know, they don't look you straight in the eye because they, they, they just have lost their sense of, of dignity. And, um, and so people need to uh, reach out and to, and to help them. I, I know uh, many, many years ago, when I was a seminarian and I uh, was being discipled by a wonderful pastor in, the, in a church in the Bay Area, and he, he would say that you know, he was just called to love people. He said, I'm here to love you. And then he told stories of how some of the millionaires you know, were just so far above you know, homeless people, mm-hmm. and he would tell them, you've got to love people. Who, who, who need, you know, your help. And so one day he said a, a very wealthy lady was jogging, and she told him, she said, you know, Pastor, I tried to do what you said. She said, I, I took some of my clothes, and I wrapped it up, and I threw it in the bushes. She said, was that good? And, but you see, she, <laughs> she, wouldn't, she wouldn't touch the person. She just threw the bag and kept running. And what I'm saying is homeless people need a hug, a handshake, they need to know that, you know, God loves them. Uh, and and so they have lost you know, all sense because they, one man told me that, um, he, he said, look, uh, homelessness for me was like a perfect storm. He said, I, uh, I my, my wife left me. He said, I, I missed a paycheck, and then I got uh, thrown out of the house. And so he said, all those three came together, and now I'm here on the street. And he was even an educated man, you know? And and so there's a lot of people out there, whether they're educated or not, I'm saying they need somebody to just take, uh, you know, an interest in them and and, uh, let them know that, number one, that God loves them, and they can turn their life around. So that's what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. That Uh, that encouragement's important. And I will mention that there are many homeless people who have fallen from great heights. Uh, They may have been successful in business. I know of one instance where an individual had a a very successful business, and that business went through hardship, and he lost everything and was on the streets for two and a half, three years, and is just now Mm -hmm. trying to recover. Uh, People are reaching out to him, trying to to assist him in getting his life back on track. So Mm -hmm. that's that's an important message. What what do you hope to achieve by sharing this uh, this message in its second edition? Well, I hope that uh, people who haven't thought about, uh, number one, individual wounds, but more importantly, these four wounds of the, of the culture, I mean, and there are probably others, but I mean, those are the ones that really struck me. I, I hope it will move them to say, you know what, I, I got to make a difference. I need to turn my, my own life around so that I can make a difference in our culture. That, that's what I'm trying to say. Beautiful. The book is called a second edition. Uh, were there a lot of changes uh, when you re-released this? Uh, there were some changes, not a whole lot, but but I tried to give some updates. For instance, I tell a story about Lucy, who was a homeless woman on the streets here in Orange County, and uh, I got to know her very very well, and. Um, 
she actually went to jail. She told me one day as I was serving coffee, she said, I won't be here for a, a while. I will uh, be in jail for 90 days. And she said, uh, I'm going to be in jail for something that people of means would not even have to bother with. But mm. because I don't have money, I will be in jail. I mean, it was something silly, like she had rented a car and, you know, either not turned it back in on time or I, I don't know what. Mm. But anyway, I kept up with her, visited her in jail. And then two years later, she sent word to the director of that feeding program who then contacted me. And he said, I mean, her name really isn't Lucy, but let's just say he said, Lucy wanted you to know that she has moved to Atlanta. She has come into some money and she was able to buy a house. Wow. Well, that just warmed my heart because here I've been asking God, you know, show me how you touch people's lives and you turn them around. And that's an example. So that was one of the updates I put in there. Fabulous. And do you think this is one of the things that sets it apart from other books out there? This is more than a self-help. It's it's really a ministry outreach uh, in some respects. It's a counseling book, and yet it's very conversational in style. What makes it in your estimation, something that my listeners should get a copy of? Well, it's exactly what you said, um, and it's also at the end, I, as you may notice, I have study notes for those who want to lead a small group because I go into more detail, break down some of the Hebrew and Greek words so that they can explain better what I'm talking about, like the word meditate. You know, I talk about how in Hebrew it really means to mumble, to mumble and to ask God, what are you saying to me? But that's at the end, in the end notes. And then also at the end of the book, there is a study guide where I am hoping people will either individually on their own read the book and ask themselves questions. Because I, I ask, you know, what did you think about Tonsonfo's story? What did you think of, of what the author said when, uh, you know, she talked about how there are uh, storms that come, you know, in the natural earthquakes and um, in the wreckage. And then I make the metaphor that, you know, the same thing happens in a life when, when somebody gets divorced. You know, have you ever had such wreckage in your life? You know, so it's, it's a book that um, I hoped that people would read the study guide and really do some self-reflection or share it in a small group pro process and share it with one another. Dr. Talby, uh, this is such a, a fabulous read. Are you planning to do any further writing? Oh, yes. I have several uh, books on the, on the burner. Uh, one, um, I actually say, I don't know if I say it in the book or, or uh, preparing for this interview, but um, it's called uh, High and Wide and Deep. And I have concluded that uh, most of us do not know the love of God. So that's what it's going to be about. And then I also have a book on the burner uh, called Game Changer, and it's about my husband's traumatic uh, rollover Jeep accident that uh, rendered him traumatically brain injured. And I want to tell that story because most people uh, have some kind of, uh, you know, things happen in their life, whether it's a miscarriage or a divorce or uh, someone gets ill and is, you know, disabled for the rest of their life, or they die. And so there, there are things that happen that are game changers. So 
that's the third book that I'm um, working on. There so, will be yes. there will be many in the future for sure, and I will again re- reemphasize this, listeners. Dr. Talby is a great storyteller and a wonderful writer, so you will enjoy not only this particular book, You Can't Heal a Wound by Saying It's Not There, but the others on the horizon. Just keep her name handy and do a search, and uh, when those books are available, hopefully we'll get to visit with you about those as well. That would be wonderful. Fabulous. The title of the book, again, is You Can't Heal a Wound by Saying It's Not There. Overcoming Your Past, Embracing Your Future. This is the second edition, and my author, Dr. Sandra J. Tolby. Where do we get copies of your book, Dr. Tolby? Okay. So it is available uh, at Amazon.com, and it's in ebook, soft uh, cover, as well as hardback. And then it's also available at Barnes & Noble and other uh, book outlets, as well as uh, at authorhouse.com. Fabulous. They can also request it at their local bookseller if they have your name on hand or the name of the book. You can't heal a wound by saying it's not there. Talby is spelt T-A-U-L-B-E-E. Got enough ease in there, I think. Well, thank you, Doc. <laughs> thank you, Doctor Talby, for joining me today and and sharing your story. This is a, a very practical book, great study guide, and uh, full of wonderful information. Thank you for sharing it with us today. Thank you so much. Honored to visit with you for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. you ever wonder if you're the only woman who runs errands in her yoga pants so it will look like she went to the gym? Or how about the only mom who feeds her kids raw cookie dough? Or are you the only one who cooks her family cold cereal for dinner? Do you need more laughter and less loudness? More self-love and less self-loathing? More joy and less judgment? You're not alone. Come to the living room a place where we get comfy, candid, and confident together. Come seeking sanctuary and leave feeling renewed. We are saving a seat for you. Give yourself some living room today. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book title is A Hidden Child in Greece, Rescue in the Holocaust. And joining me from the East Coast of the United States is author Yolanda Avram Willis. Welcome to the program, Yolanda. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Willis, this uh, this book uh, must have taken, a li- I will say, a lifetime to, to write because you were the child in this picture on the front, very young lady, a uh, very young girl, and you ended up in Greece, or were living in Greece at the time of World War II. Tell my listeners a little of the background history of how this book got written. Well, I um, I was six years old when um, I was six when uh, the war came to Greece, which was thirteen months after it began with the invasion of Poland. Yes. Um, but uh, in Greece, we were not uh, attacked until um, um, much later, about 13 months later. 
And what was the situation leading up to that attack? You, you, Greece was not, uh, I, 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 from my recollection, not super active in the wartime effort on either side at that point. Was that uh, is that an, an absolute correct no, evaluation or not? We were not, not involved until um, Italy, at which who, um, Italy at the time was a member of the Axis, and um, so they um, attacked us or asked for safe passage. Uh, to peacefully, supposedly, you know, come in and occupy Greece. And Greece uh, answered a very simple no, uh, which in Greek is called ohi, uh, no. Yes. So um, the Italians then uh, declared war and began to fight us, and we fought them back for six months while whole countries fell within a week or a weekend, um, right and left in Europe. But Greece held out against the Italians. Now, when the Germans attacked in the spring of 1941, um, Greece, uh, my parents knew that there was no, no way we weren't going to be occupied very quickly. And so we sped and a rented truck um, southward uh, through the Peloponnesus, the grape life, uh, the grape leaf um, uh, type uh, of structure in the southern part of the mainland, and we sped to Crete by boat, by fishing boat. Mm. In Crete, we were. Um, uh, my, my father tried to meet the most prominent local businessman because he was himself, my father was a businessman, and he, we were introduced to the family of Stratis Xiruhakis. Um, Mr. Xiruhakis was a uh, farmer and winemaker and entrepreneur. He had the shop, and uh, uh, he... Um, um, they were when my father, when the invasion started, uh, within about 20, 25 miles of our location. Um, I mean, it was terrifying. My father went to find his new friend, and he found them packing to go to the mountains. Um, and man. He, he said to him, what will become of us, my friend? And then Mr. was speechless. And then my father looked him in the eye and he said, I now have but you and God. Wow. Now, your family's Mr. history... Yes, your family's history. Pardon? You were part of the diaspora. You were a Jewish uh, enclave or Jewish uh, people living in in uh, Greece. How long had your family's history gone back in in the country of Greece? I don't really know, but um, the oldest Jewish communities in Europe um, were uh, were in Greece according mm. to Martin Gilbert, who has researched the matter, you know, has written 88 historical books and atlases. Mm. You went to Crete, and uh, that was uh, hopefully a place of rescue, but it didn't turn out that no, way. No, it wasn't for that. It was a way station on the way to um, Cairo, Egypt. 
Uh, the government had fled to Cairo, Egypt, and also the royal family. The king was still in, in Crete, but uh, the, his family had fled already with the government in the island, uh, to the island of, um, well, to actually North Africa. And your um, your family did not make it to North Africa, is that correct? We never made it no. because soon after we um, we realized, you know, what was going on, um, the um, invasion in Crete uh, came by air. It was strictly a paratrooper invasion. We saw the umbrellas, what the locals called the the. Uh, parachutes, the umbrellas, um, grown-ups and all, um, and we saw them descending as we climbed on foot to the mountains. There were a few animals that were borrowed um, and or owned by the Xilhaikis family, and extra ones were um, borrowed for our sake. Um, I, I was sent, I was six years old, I was sent with the men, which was the two heads of family, the Xilhaikis and uh, my father, Salvatore Avram, president of the third biggest city, president of the Jewish community in the third biggest city of Greece, Larissa. Amazing story. You also recount there was, uh, there were people of, uh, of other uh, ethnicities, not Jewish faith, that stepped in to try to rescue and save the Jewish community. Is that also a part of your story? It is true that uh, for Asian coupons that were provided by the International Red Cross, there was a, a, an official from um, from um, Sweden and a, an official from another northern country and they were they permitted the Asian coupons to follow the fleeing Jews to the mountains. Incredible. Uh, Dr. Willis, as you begin to tell this story, how did you remember the details? You have it broken down into two parts. One is the at-war part, and then uh, you talk a little of reunion and other miracles that happened during that uh, that time of of uh, trying to uh, to remain in safety. Your brother was captured 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 at one point, and uh, no, no, he no. was not. He was he almost was never captured. Never captured but None he, of our four members. Um, household was captured ever. Uh. We were incarcerated at one point, but the Germans didn't catch on that we were Jewish. We were even told what, they, what the commandant who had invited us to dinner um, would do if the Jews who were at fault, who had started the war, mm. um, what he would do to one of them if, if there was one right here at tonight, Incredible. at that night, and he gestured in a strangling motion, his face dark and mean. Ouch. How did you, how did you camouflage the fact of your ethnicity, of your, of your heritage, excuse me? How did, you, how did you camouflage that in that very difficult we situation? Just, my, the adults had false identification papers, 
and uh, the children didn't need anything. We just changed, uh, I changed my name to uh, Julia, which was less exotic. It was very ordinary Greek name than uh, Yolanda. And my brother was given the name of Yanis Angelakis, John Angel, by his rescuing family. Incredible. And you, as children, were able to latch on to the severity or the, 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 the seriousness of the situation your family was in then? Well, I did, but my brother was two when I was ah. six. And um, for him, um, the reentry to the family was extremely traumatic. He did not want to leave his rescuing home. Uh, he knew they were strangers, but they were loving, and uh, they didn't constantly relocate like we had done um, because of danger or or because of roundups. And uh, so he he was really comfortable there, and he always wanted to be with them. You talk in one of your chapters about your brother's rescue and uh, the Italian's withdrawal and then go into another hiding place. Share that story for my listeners. Um, I think that uh, you're talking about when my first rescuer became a fugitive for having hidden Jews. Yes. Because my father was recognized coming and going from his from my rescuer's home. Um, my parents were had given me to this family. The family pretended I was their baptismal daughter. A goddaughter in Greece, in Greek, is called a baptismal daughter, and that was an excellent cover for somebody who was not Christian, because it sounded like I had been dunked in a, in baptism. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, however, the at one point, my parents were in a very difficult situation, where found themselves um, homeless. And um, my father met um, the person that became my godfather in, um, in a pasta factory where they independently worked to supplement their income in order to support their families. Um, he asked my godfather, he told him, I have a little girl, and I'm afraid we keep getting recognized. Um, I need to find a home to take her, a Christian home to take her. And the man said, I'll take her, and I'll present her as my baptismal daughter. Incredible. He and his wife, Aphrodite, um, reached out, took me in, and They risked the life of a very little girl, Emmy, who was two or three years younger than I was. Amazing story. You you have over 300 pages, almost 357 is what I'm seeing. Did you take a long time to reflect on your story? And if so, why did you want to share it with uh, the audience? Well, when you read my story, you will see... It is full of my gratitude to those that reached out to save not only my family, but my extended family. Some of them survived through being rescued by righteous Christians. 
Christian Greeks who risked their families to save us. Wow. To hide us and shelter us. The story had to be told, but I did not realize I was considered a survivor until I was in my late 50s, and my brother had died. He was four years younger, so I was very despondent, and my daughter suggested that I go to the Holocaust Center, that they might have support groups there. And I said, what would they do with me? I'm not a survivor. Mm. He said, oh, yes. By current definition, you're a survivor. And also the child of survivors, and we, she smiled at me, have special problems. Because often the children of survivors were um, reversing roles and protecting, emotionally protecting their parents who were despondent over the loss of their lives livelihoods, their relatives, their whole way of life. Besides the the positive message of uh, your being rescued in a very difficult situation in reflection, are there other underlying messages that the reader is going to garner from from, from being acquainted with your story? Yes, uh, indeed. On part, in part two of my book, which is smaller than part one, uh, part one is the rescue of my, the survival of my own family, my immediate family, and some extended family. The part two is about other rescues and other rescuers, people that we had nothing to do with, but their stories were parallel to ours because the Greek population, the Greek Christian population reached out, and especially the resistance and and hid and protected the Jews during that time of persecution. This is an important story that you've shared, not just today, but in in write, in written form, 357 pages, the title of which is A Hidden Child in Greece, Rescue in the Holocaust. And my guest has been Dr. Yolanda Avram Willis. Dr. Willis, thank you for taking time not only to share your story today, but sharing your story in written form, because our world needs to hear it and read and reflect on what happened during that time period. Thank you again for joining me today. Thank you, Jay. Dr. Willis, how did you find these other individuals and the stories that they are uh, are reflecting to you in your book? Um, basically, I made many trips back to Greece, sometimes by myself, sometimes with my children, and then eventually with uh, some of my grandchildren. And we always visited the rescuing families and the rescuing places, the places we hid. Incredible. And uh, it was just a way for my... We we have pictures unto the third generation where the grand son of the rescuer and the grandson of the rescued um, are pictured together next in the little church on the mountain they took us um, in Crete. Um, We have unto the fourth generation where my granddaughter is pictured, the great-granddaughter of the rescued family is pictured with the great-granddaughter of the rescuers of my brother. 
Beautiful. And I will mention to my readers, there are multiple maps and photos in this book also to accompany the text. So, 152. Beautiful. To be exact. <laughs> to be exact. All right, Dr. Willis. Where do we get copies of your book? Amazon, um, Barnes & Noble online, and um, also from the self-publisher um, Author House. Excellent. They can do a search online also under your name, Yolanda Avram Willis, and uh, locate yes. this book and anything a else that comes out in the future. A Hidden Child in Greece. A Hidden Child in Greece. Thank you again for for the courage that it took to reflect on some of these difficult memories, but also share the positive side, which uh, we need today. Thank you again for joining me. Thank you. My pleasure for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. <laughs>